0: This is the Kratom Science Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Gallagher, blog and social media writer for KratomScience.com, your source for all things Kratom. My guest is Dr. Zach Walsh. He is a cannabis expert and psychology professor at University of British Columbia, and the third Canadian guest on the Kratom Science Podcast. Yeah, I've been watching a lot of your talks about cannabis, and um, you're a professor uh, at University of Columbia, uh, uh, British University Columbia, of I'm British sorry. Columbia, yeah. And, 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 sorry, and, what is your podcast? It's called the Kratom Science Podcast. Okay. Yeah, but I don't yeah, mind Mark. mostly talking about cannabis, because I've talked about Kratom for about 50-something episodes. <laughs> Most of the people who listen, I think, will be interested in cannabis and psychedelics as well. Cannabis has been legalized, and Canada was one of the first countries to fully legalize cannabis. Has there been, and that was in 2018, two years ago, has there been uh, an impact on on the research that you can do in Canada because of legalization?
1: You know, yes and no. So the big moment for us with um with legalization and research really was when, um, through a series of court uh, victories, uh, they, they revised the medical cannabis program to allow for um, what were called licensed producers. So it used to be that you could only get your medical ca- your cannabis uh, from a single producer that was hired by the government and they did a, a fairly, um, n- you know, they had a limited uh, range of cannabis products that were not widely accepted by uh, by medical cannabis patients, and that's why uh, the all the that's why the dispensaries cropped up. Because yes, there was a program, and yes, it was legal, but the government uh, product was not satisfactory to most um, patients, and so they were allowed to grow their own, etc. But it 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 was revised to say, okay, we're going to have a competitive model where there's going to be for profit companies that are producing cannabis, and when that came on board, all of a sudden there was product that we could use. Um, that was uh, for research purposes. So we could do research with good quality cannabis. And there was an industry that was supportive of that research. And that was a couple of years before broad legalization. I think it was like, yeah, maybe three years before we legalized entirely that that amendment was made. And that's really what opened up the research for us. Cause all of a sudden there was companies that could be partnered with, they could provide cannabis. And that was in a way a bigger change than legalization itself. If anything, legalization in some ways makes medical research more difficult um, just because if you're trying to do trials or what have you, everyone has access to cannabis anyhow, and it makes it uh, paradoxically, people are not particularly interested in being part of, a, you know all the rigmarole of a clinical trial mm-hmm. when you can just get the medicine, uh, you know quite easily at a corner store.
0: Yeah, yeah. And you had mentioned in one of your talks, I was watching a couple of the um, talks on YouTube, um, that here in the United States, we have legal cannabis that's allowed to be used in, uh, in clinical trials that's grown... By the um, NIDA in Mississippi. And you mentioned that it's grown, you said it was grown with di- disdain, <laughs> which is pretty funny because it's so low quality and it you know includes stems and seeds and it sounds like the stuff i used to get in high school um, so how... i can't
1: speak to the mental state of the growers and i'm sure they're very talented i know that they're <laughs> limited in what they're allowed to produce so i don't okay. want i don't you know i every time i I've, i know i've said that and i i wince a bit about it being held accountable it appears as if it was grown with stain. Okay. one can be forgiven for, for for assuming that based on the end product but I certainly don't want to infer that the people who are working hard in the Mississippi farm where I believe it's produced still uh, have disdain for it. I think that they're probably <laughs> quite quite um, into their work and doing as good a job as they're able to do, given the restrictions. But there is a yeah. study. It's not yeah. just me. Um, there's that uh, study from a uh, team of cinnamon Bidwell from University of Colorado and other places that that looked at that cannabis, that night cannabis and compared it to what's in dispensaries. And even from a from a chemical analysis, it, it has a different uh, cannabinoid profile, largely because it's so old. Um, so it has the different... It, it's, not, it's not like what people are using medically. So it, it, yeah. it, it hurts the validity of the research.
0: And, I and that guess... was our position
1: in Canada for a long time, too, until yeah. the licensed producers came along. Now we can get decent weed for, for research.
0: You talked a bit um, in your um, TEDx talk about the history of cannabis going back millennia. Uh, what do we know about why people started to first use cannabis?
1: Yeah, um, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I think this sort of the short and cheeky answer to that is because it works. I mean, so many. Yeah. it has a profound, uh, undeniable effect, which also, you know, I think feeds into one some of the difficulties of the research. If we everybody wants placebo controlled research, but when everyone's tried cannabis, uh, people tend to know if they're in the placebo condition, and it does have such an overt. Uh, effect so you know it's it's always uh a wonder how humans first assayed uh these different products uh whether it's kratom or or whether it's cannabis Uh, but we know that the history of it is is from from central asia from china uh and it it goes all the way back into sort of a mix of, of of i suppose that time in our history when medicine and religion and um and science were less separate. So the, the Sheng Shengnan is the is the historical figure in, in the Chinese uh, literature, who um, who is also attributed to discovering tea. And if you look at pictures of him, he doesn't look entirely human. So it's sort of a shamanic healer, uh, historical figure that is thought to have introduced cannabis. Um, but whether the, to the extent that he was a, 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 an actual figure or a composite of a bunch of different folks, um, or just sort of a conduit of healing traditions. I think it's really, uh, th- there's probably some anthropologists or historians who would have better uh, things to say about that than me. But I think the the, the take home is that it goes back to prehistory. Uh, before, yeah, it's a, it's a long history, a synergistic history. We know the cannabis pops up. Uh, it's sometimes called the trail follower. So it pops up where humans have disturbed the ground uh, and camps. So it's a real synergy. I sometimes like to make the analogy. It's like a dog. Uh, you know, there's so many different varieties and, and I, I think Kratom is like that in, in a way as well as it's sort of, and I don't know the history of Kratom as well. And I don't, um, I don't know if it's been as, uh, uh, you know, uh, comprehensively documented in, at least in the English literature, I'm sure there's probably some really great stuff out there for someone who, who can dig it up. Um, but a lot of the plants really have emerged, Uh, In partnership with humans And humans help them to spread And they help humans So it's sort of a synergistic relationship
0: And um, along with that uh, We've, you know, recently Have some fear of cannabis And prohibition And, I mean, we can trace it In American history In recent history Back to the 30s With Harry Anslinger Mm -hmm. And everything Is there any evidence That there was this kind of reaction To cannabis Or any substances Like prior to the 19th century
1: yeah you know um substances that change our are that are psychoactive that change our consciousness have always been so highly prized by different societies and i think they become emblematic of the societies that use them you know um certainly you can see how alcohol has been um been integrated into judeo-christian uh traditions and you know despite the despite the uh public health consequences of alcohol use it's really enshrined and you know you really wouldn't want to try to get rid of it um it's just part of the culture and it's the same with other with other substances and then when cultures clash they often demonize each other's substances so you know even there was a time when you could be put to death in germany for coffee um, because it was thought to be an infidel's beverage so i do take some you know when i look at the long history of drug prohibition it's not just us have had these crazy ideas about trying to villainize substances and the people who use them, and and picked some that for seemingly random reasons. If you look at how dangerous they actually are or aren't, and picked some and said they're great, and others and said they're evil, and people who use them or should be punished, etc. Yeah, it's not a unique thing. Although it does seem to be uh, like many other terrible things that's been perfected in uh, in the modern era. I mean,
0: with with kratom, that's kind of what people are dealing with it seems to be to work for most people and be relatively safe and the study you did with um dr swagger and uh the folks that run arrowhead um show that most people in self-reporting anyway uh say that it's it's been a positive with a few uh few side effects and then we see a lot of case studies that are they're just you know single cases of people developing maybe an addiction to Kratom, maybe mixed it with something else and got sick, or it, they mm. call it a Kratom-related death if, I mean, one guy got shot and they called that a Kratom-related death, so some, <laughs> some of these are clearly, uh, they're trying it's... to accentuate the negatives, um, so what, what accounts for that?
1: Well it's almost a case study in drug hysteria isn't it? I mean yeah. that, I think that's one of the things that really interested me about kratom right off the bat is it's kind of obscure to most people. Uh, so it's almost like a, a an inkblot ink blot test or something like how people re- how how different agencies and and different uh, organizations respond to kratom it says a lot about how they respond to drugs more broadly because they probably don't know much about kratom. So there's a there's certainly a group of people where there's this almost knee-jerk enthusiasm for finding a problem with kratom um, and really exaggerating it based on I really don't know what other than some kind of a drug hysteria. Um, It's hard to say why, you know, it's quite, my sense of it is that like anything, it's not entirely uh, benign. It can cause, certainly it can cause um, a bit of a dependence uh, but in terms of the acute risks of it, I mean, we tolerate so many dangerous things in our society. I live in the mountains of British Columbia here and and there's people uh, skiing all the time. And I see students come in with broken legs and you hear you, you go to the hills and you see people carried away on stretchers. And yet we don't seem to have any problem with with the fact that people enjoy skiing or it does something for their health and well-being. And they're allowed to do it. And nobody would think to, to prohibit that. Um, mm-hmm. Yet I I would suggest that skiing is every bit as dangerous as kratom.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, really. I I definitely would not ski, and and I take kratom a couple of days a week. <laughs> so. There you go.
1: There you go. And no one's had to carry you out on a stretcher. No, not yet. You didn't miss your finals because you had a broken leg due to a kratom related accident. <laughs> well, quantify awesome. it. You know, we don't even quantify those risks. I mean, you can do case studies of people skiing. Yeah, it's terrible.
0: This was one of your talks that was uh, from last year, uh, psychology colloquia. Um, I think it was titled "Cannabis Revised." And you mentioned an article about Mal- that Malcolm Gladwell wrote um, that about somebody that smoked pot and then went on a murderous rampage. And his source was a psychiatrist. For that, does the field of psychiatry in general have a, like an embedded vendetta against? substances like kratom and cannabis maybe because it keeps them in business if people are afraid of them and want to get off and they go to see the psychiatrist
1: well i know a lot of really great psychiatrists a lot of a lot of people in mental health generally are are there because they want to try to alleviate suffering but at the same time uh and and i would say that's you know almost everybody but there's a conservatism in the medical uh field and, and also you know the when it comes to psychiatry, they're really the, um, they're the gatekeepers of normal. So, you know, they have a, they're, they're very, um, they have a quasi-religious status in, the, in our society of saying what's sane, what's okay, what's admissible. And so they're defensive of things that come from outside their purview. And that includes, you know, substances like maybe kratom and cannabis that come from other cultures and have ancient histories that are steeped in religion and and other things, um, mysticism that 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 are maybe incongruent with their training. So, you know, a new drug can come down the drug development pipe, and it should be mysterious. It doesn't have thousands of years of, of anecdotal use, uh, but because. Uh, the medical establishment feels comfortable with this pathway, even though there's not much known about these drugs, they say, oh yes, this is something, this is promising, this is exciting, we should try it. And, it, and if people have bad results, they should stick with it until the good results show up, et cetera. Um, but then something like Kratom or cannabis comes along and they're like, wait, we don't know anything about this. There's not enough research. And it's really, um, I think a little bit um, narrow in the definition of what constitutes evidence uh, and, and what, what constitutes truth. It really gets to sort of a, an epistemological issue of how do you know what you know? So if you only wanna know uh, about safety uh, of, and effectiveness of substances of what can be found from a clinical trial, then that is all you know, and then you can say that there's nothing known about things like kratom and cannabis. But if you wanna look at, you know, what have people been using for a very long time um, and what do we know about these traditional uses, Uh, then there is a lot you can know and maybe you know a lot more than you do about some of these pharmaceutical drugs really so it really comes down to what does it mean to know and how quick uh, some psychiatrists and medical establishments are to say there's not enough evidence we don't know anything and really what they're saying is we're keeping a gate on truth and um, what's true is what we can say and how do you enter the club of what's true well it takes a lot of money because you have to do these rcts And that really limits what can even be tested. I don't, you know, um, something like Kratom or cannabis, there's limited uh, ability to put them through an RCT pathway. It's not one size fits all. So these are, these have uh, several constituents. They're not single molecule medicines. Um, And they may have limited commercial potential that would, um, you know, pay someone back for spending millions of dollars on that drug development pathway. So we can all, you know, solemnly nod our heads and say, yes, we need more RCTs. But if we want to be pragmatic and say, Hey, maybe these RCTs aren't going to happen. Um, where are we left with, do we just discard these medicines when they appear to have potential to treat things that are under treated, uh, when they appear to have potential to compete with other medicines that have really problematic side effects. Um, I mean, I think these are these are sort of the questions that that really guide my research and my, and my science.
0: And by RCTs, you mean research clinical trials, is that right? Yeah, sorry, I should I shouldn't
1: yeah. use acronyms. Sorry about that. Randomized clinical trials. Yeah, Randomized. the kind of things. That, okay. that...
0: Yeah. There's a danger of uh, kratom becoming illegal in this country, and which would, you know, shut down research. Which cannabis? I mean, they were researching cannabis before the prohibition and mm-hmm. you know we it was like 80 years of uh epileptics for example that could have benefited directly mm. directly from it and um what do we know about um uh, cannabis um what why do people uh, use it today what what are they reporting
1: well i mean medically the big reasons people use it it's it is pain sleep um anxiety those are the big three that keep coming up again and again in all the surveys really is is pain sleep and anxiety and then there are different uh you know subclusters of patients who use it for a variety of different reasons from gastrointestinal issues to um, uh, yeah nausea the epilepsy um, muscle spasms etc but those are more for specific conditions I'd say you're you're you know, If you look at pain, anxiety, and sleep, and, and even people who are using it for those other conditions will often repeat, report those as side, positive side benefits. I mean, managing pain is a big thing, and, and I think that's a big piece of, of Kratom as well. And I'm interested to see how Kratom and cannabis work together. Certainly anecdotally, uh, we hear a lot of people uh, having some good effects there, but mm-hmm. it, it is yeah. tricky to do the research, Um just because kratom does remain sort of uh, slightly obscure, it's hard to get good samples of kratom users. I know that Oliver Grundman and some other colleagues of mine are doing a great job of that, but...
0: Is there a difference between medicinal and recreational use for marijuana? My question is, isn't it all kind of medicinal? If you're, you're using it to kind of change your Mental state. that Yeah, so you sort of asking ask about the line
1: between medical and recreational. I think that's such a good yeah. question, and it's certainly something that comes up with kratom too, right?
0: Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Um,
1: and you know, I, I think it there there are blurry boundaries. So for the, there are some folks um, who use cannabis, let's say for maybe first for seizures or or for um, other conditions, nausea. Uh, et cetera, where it's very effective and they may not even like the psychoactive effects. So it's a negative side effect. Uh, I wish I didn't feel this way, but it really, the the payoff is worth it. And then there are other people who really don't, uh, wouldn't describe themselves as having a medical reason. They just like to get high. And um, that's not, those two things are not the same, I don't think. And then it's even more complicated because those people who use it medically might sometimes use it just to get high. Yeah. and then some people who use it primarily just because they like to you know stick on the headphones and listen to some tunes while they're stoned um <laughs> they may sometimes use it for for a medical reason so i don't think that there's i don't think we can put um you know uh firm boundaries between those i think that the analogy of a dog i think is is helpful in a way i don't know i like it, it you know if, if we were to ban dogs uh, because they're a nuisance they bite kids you know, protect the kids. That's always a big thing for yeah. drug prohibition. And, you know, <laughs> 90% of dog related accidents are due to kids. I don't know, but you could you can make a case of why, and I would never want to ban dogs, but you can make a case that they're a nuisance, but then you probably let them, if you were to re sort of revisit that, you might make exceptions for, you know, um, uh, people who are visually impaired. They, you might say, well, those people really need a dog. So let them have a dog. And then maybe there's people who, who are isolated and lonely and depression. That might be the next people you open it up to. And then eventually you'd say, well, everyone can have a dog because you know, you know, how sad do you have to be to want to be cheered up by a dog? Um, so, you know, I think it it goes, you know, there's some cases where people really need the medicine and it might be purely medical. Um, there's other cases where it's not medical at all, but for a lot of us, it's a mixture of, of being comforted by, uh, by another species, plant species, and, and having a relationship with that plant that is uh, beneficial.
0: Yeah, that's a good that's a good uh, answer. And canine and cannabis, I don't know if they're related words. Probably not. But <laughs> just and cratum. Yeah, yeah. It's funny because everybody around, and they everybody around the 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 headquarters calls it. Kratom, but they told me to call it Kratom because that's how most people pronounce it. Which is, I don't
1: know. Uh, well, I couldn't believe it when I found out that the second vowel was also uh, was also uh, controversial. Because I was getting <laughs> mixed up between Kratom and Kratom. And then someone said Kratom, and I was like, no, you can't mess with the O2. That means there's <laughs> like... Many different options.
0: <laughs> My, uh, what is the right way to pronounce it, man? Uh, Dr. Uh, Singh from Malaysia, I interviewed him on here, and he said, Yes, Brian Singh. Brian, it's K-tom. K-tom. <laughs> tom It almost no R in there. Well, he said that's how it's pronounced in Malaysia anyway. Uh, Off the
1: tongue, better than Kratom. Yeah. But
0: yeah. It, i got to pick one. While we're Remember on that. semantics, um, uh, you talked about the term marijuana. It has uh, actual racial overtones, and a lot of people might react and say, well, that maybe that's just political correctness, but I think language is more important, uh, isn't it? Because now well, a lot of people we call it cannabis because we're acknowledging why it was outlawed in the past.
1: Political correctness is you know really, I think in the eye of the beholder. Really, when someone accuses someone else of political correctness, they're saying "shut up." Yeah, what you're saying is not relevant. Yeah, and that's just if that's what you mean, just say that. Don't accuse me of something odd, uh, like political correctness. I don't really know what it means. If if someone wants to call something something, they have a reason for it. The reason why, uh, and and, you know that that argument when it comes to cannabis really doesn't hold much water because the reason they switched it to marijuana in the first place is because of that reason. Because calling it something um, matters. Right. They, they tried to everyone knew about cannabis as a medicine, mm-hmm. uh, mostly in tinctures, but it was an over the counter medicine. So if you're going to make some new drug scare around uh, around something, you can't just call it the thing that everybody already knows. You're not going to have like some ibuprofen mania. You've got to make something new. Uh, mm-hmm. So they made it marijuana and, and, and tried to characterize it as coming from Mexico. Yeah. When really it's an Asian plant uh, that was well known and came from China to India, to Britain, to the U S. Uh, but no, they made it marijuana coming from Mexico and really did tie it to, uh, to, um, you know, to racism straight up. And I don't think yeah. there's much, uh, there's much debate that the war on drugs is racist. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, there was a time when that was debatable and I like a lot of things I'm glad to see that debate put to sleep. Yeah. It's ra- racist. And, 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 um, that's just one more reason why it's got to, it's got to be stopped. It's always been racist. That's why we villainize some drugs, not others. And that's mm-hmm. why Kratom as seemingly innocuous as it is in many ways and has the potential, maybe if we learn more about it to help us with this terrible opioid overdose epidemic, that's a real, real, real threat. Mm-hmm. Um, but yet it's being villainized because they can find, you know, one case report from Sweden where someone mixed it with, 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 something dangerous and then had a bad outcome. Yeah. Um, but part of it is because it is this exotic drug. What is it? Ooh, we're scared of it. Um, it's because it's exotic. If someone were to manufacture something like kratom, it would be considered a very promising pharmaceutical.
0: And, and it's cr- crazy that they haven't yet. I mean, and it just seems like, you know, it, it's it's helping people more than it hurts. And, and it's not... A clinical trial but it's I, I there's no reason these people are lying you know, like they're it, you i know. know i know right yeah what
1: i mean it and it gets into a pretty there's sort of deep questions around um around what what makes a medicine what makes it effective you know one one of the things that um we find sometimes in the cannabis research is, is you'll ask someone how is cannabis helping you and they say it's very helpful um hmm. uh, you know, it really helps my symptoms, but if you track them over time, their symptoms don't get any better. So, I mean, I think one, one objection that people would have to that research. And of course it's the kind of research that I do. So I think it does tell us a lot, but people say, Oh yeah, that people just think they're getting better. They're not getting better. And then you, you have to wonder, well, is thinking you're getting better a kind of a getting better? Like what's, what's the standard? uh for what's helpful and what's effective all these people you can't i don't think it's fair to dismiss um all these anecdotal reports um you know and and in the absence of pronounced risk which seems to be the case with with kratom we don't see terrible cases they have to dig pretty hard to make these cases against it if people seem to think that it's effective then i think there should be a weight on that i don't know why um why people are so concerned, like I say, about Kratom when there's so many other dangerous things in the world. Why Kratom?
0: You said in one of your talks that um, when studying psychedelics, you you should consider a little bit of magic and a little bit of skepticism. Uh, Can you elaborate on that? Uh, Does science need to consider scientists need to consider a more kind of maybe spiritual uh, perspective or do spiritual people need to consider a more scientific perspective when it comes to psychedelics
1: well i think i i guess sort of what i'm what i'm saying there is is i think that it doesn't just because you describe something in one way doesn't mean you've described it entirely so we have to be open to to the fact that that, that we're not just, we're not going to capture all the effects, whether it's in an RCT, uh, randomized clinical trial, or whether it's in uh, these cross-sectional designs, or whether it's in some of the more, you know, uh, esoteric, fanciful descriptions of, of what people have. All of those give us a perspective on the experience that help us understand it in different ways. So, yeah, I think, I think it's important that we, that we recognize that, know there's a time when when uh and and i think there still are ways in which um you know contemporary western medicine and magic and ritual are still entwined and Mm. uh that may be part of what we see with this interest in in plant medicines like kratom like psilocybin like cannabis beyond just whether or not they're more effective than a pharmaceutical but you know there i think there there are people that, and many people who say there's something more appealing about those, uh, those kind of approaches than pharmaceuticals. And, you know, there's, there's, I think, um, there can be a tendency to write that off and say, Oh, you know, just cause something's natural doesn't mean it's safe. And what do you even mean by natural? And that's just a flaky idea. But I think yeah. we do a disservice to genuine, um, longings of people for a different kind of approach to health and to wellness and to a connection with with the way things uh with uh, the way things might be that's a little bit different than our current um, medical paradigm and it hasn't always been the way it is now and it's going to change in the future too so i think we want to stay open to to what these plants bring us not just try to shove them into uh, the existing model of pharmaceuticals and and say, look, Kratom is as good as a pharmaceutical. Maybe in some ways it's better, in some ways it's worse, but I think we want to make space for that.
0: In psychedelic psychotherapy, it's something that's being explored again, it seems recently after a big gap starting with the war on drugs. What does that look like? Um, It seems to be some people are having like really making really good progress with their um with their issues on psychedelics and and um you know this is come from in a culture that kind of demonized it as you know stories about people jumping out the window after they took mm-hmm. a hit of acid and everything like that and and um so what is what does that look like a, a psychedelic psych, psychotherapy session
1: well you know the the typical the typical model, and I don't think that there is a standard that's, that's, that has you know solidified yet, but I think there's definitely converging uh, approaches. And what I think is consistent is you know, a couple um, non-drug sessions of preparation and a couple non-drug sessions of um, integration. So you get ready for the experience, you focus yourself, uh, et cetera. And then you sort of unpack it afterwards. In terms of what the actual session looks like, um, you know, it's sort of like a procedure in in a sense that people will mostly be quiet, uh, sleep mask, headphones with uh, usually a pretty well-tailored soundtrack that's emotionally evocative but not too distracting. So not a lot of lyrics or any lyrics usually um and uh the presence of a therapist but the therapist is typically not that active especially at high doses it's not a place where you want to be doing a whole lot of talk therapy uh other than to reassure someone and let them go back and have their experience there's time to talk about it uh in subsequent sessions Mm -hmm. but really if you were to see someone doing psychedelic psychotherapy if things are going well um, mostly just see someone lying on a couch with a sleep mask and maybe some headphones on and someone else standing uh, sitting by their side
0: Yeah yeah and no words that explains uh, why the Grateful Dead was uh, <laughs> a pretty good ba- you know because they would jam out Grateful Dead's still my favorite band <laughs> Yeah and I saw you use Jerry Garcia and your one t- I saw them twice. Under the influence of psychedelics, (laughs) but that was really quite the influence of psychedelics. Yeah, (laughs) something, something else, isn't it? Yeah, that was really quite an experience. I mean, I don't, I don't know if there's anything that it, it's begun to explain what that was in science, but it was fun. It was fun anyway.
1: It was certainly fun. <laughs> yeah, you're making me miss uh, miss live music for sure, and it doesn't get oh, any better. Oh yeah, I know. Good old grateful dad from my perspective.
0: <laughs> there was, uh, you did a uh, there was a study called reductions in alcohol use following medical cannabis initiation. Um, mm-hmm. How does that work? Um, I know that uh, you know I, I have problem drinking in the past, and then. You know, when I get sober, cannabis always it helps. What it helps is I don't have to be in my annoying sober brain all day. I can have a little cannabis and get away from it. With and it helps with my intention to stay sober. Is that kind of the mechanism of how cannabis helps with uh, alcohol cessation?
1: I love that question. That's one of the main areas of interest for me in research is how does cannabis work as a substitute? Cause I think, and it's going to be, this, it's the same with Kratom is, you know, If we look at the real public health benefits, I think what we're going to have to do is we have to get a little bit more complicated and say, well, maybe the benefits aren't direct. Maybe they're indirect through reductions in the use of other substances with kratom, Obviously, it's opioids, cannabis, it's opioids too, but also alcohol. Alcohol is the most consumed drug and it's the most problematic even with the opioid overdose epidemic. I think the public health costs of alcohol are still greater. Mm -hmm. So if cannabis reduces alcohol use, then that's great. It could, re- it could and, and potentially it could increase it too, right? I mean, if you look at something like cocaine, it makes people drink more. So yeah. not all drugs are substitutes. Some are complements where they make, make you drink more of them or, or use more of another drug. In the case of cannabis, I think there's a couple mechanisms of how cannabis reduces alcohol use. One can be the kind of thing you're talking about where it's a direct uh, mindful substitute where you're like, I'm not going to drink alcohol. I'm going to use cannabis instead. And that maybe makes it more acceptable. It feels like less of a sacrifice if you know. At the end of the day, you, instead of having a drink, you have a you have a puff, and it does pretty much the same thing: gets you out of your head and creates sort of a buffer between one part of the day and another. Um, yeah, that, I think that that's probably a lot of it. These people mindfully, effortfully using canvas as a substitute. I think it might also um, just directly have some. And one thing that we're interested in, this is something that hasn't come out yet, but one of my master's students just finished up a study looking at how about binge drinking? Because really that's where the concern is with drinking is mostly if people are drinking more than four or so drinks on an occasion. And once you get past five or six drinks, that's when you get into this danger zone where each additional drink increases risk of accident and negative outcomes. So even if you can cut someone's binge from seven beer to six beer, uh, even though it seems like a small thing yeah. uh, at a public health level, it can be quite a savings.
0: Oh, and yeah. I think
1: cannabis works there too. I think it causes people to drink a little more slowly um, and maybe forget where they left their beer or that they even opened. <laughs> that's <laughs> and, great. And joking, but really. That's one of the things that yeah. we found in our, you know, in our study was that cannabis uh, combined with alcohol, people drank about a drink less in a binge. And that it might not have even been that intentional, that they may not have meant to, they just ended up drinking a little more slowly because they're smoking at the same time, and ended up getting less drunk. And, and I mean, anecdotally, I've had that happen. Um, Yeah, you just drink more
0: slowly. Yeah, yeah. A, lo- a lot of people I know get get uh, really sick if they do uh, both. So they'll, and they mostly ended up choosing, you know, the the safer one. And there was another uh, study you did on psychedelic use and intimate partner violence, and it 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 shows that like this is in line with the public health issue that it shows that it has a role. It regulates your emotions. Like people who have used psychedelics are less likely to be violent. It's
1: yeah 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 it looks like it's partially that that it it leads to better that it's associated with better emotion regulation um and um you know i think that that feeds into some of our ideas about how um how psychedelics might work it just make you give you a little bit of a perspective on your emotion so that you can experience it as an emotion instead of being entirely fused with it so it's just like a fact like i gotta react to this this is real i'm being threatened or I've had enough, or whatever. You you have that little bit of distance on yourself, where you can say, "Boy, I'm having that thought that I have had enough, and maybe I have, maybe I hadn't, but I don't need to act on it. I can just have that thought and keep on living my values, which are for most people to be nonviolent."
0: Yeah, and that's why I've never seen a fight at a Grateful Dead show unless uh, they were drinking. I think. <laughs>
1: yeah, no, they're the remarkably peaceful events considering the level of intoxication.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, well but, thanks so much brian that yeah, was a thanks fun a lot. Time. yeah Good thanks night. a lot i'll edit it together and i'll uh, send you an email when it's up this music runs. isn't the grateful dead it's rising the song is called memories of thailand the kratom science podcast is written and produced by me brian gallagher for kratom take care